just the truths that your word imparts. I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. You may. Whoops. All right, good morning again, and welcome to Grace Church of the Bay Area. Uh, for those who are, are familiar with the church and understand what we do here, you probably understand what we're doing, Roger and myself, up here right now. But if you are new here, uh, we want to welcome you and want to let you know what's going on. Basically, whenever there is a fifth Sunday in the month, typically we do preach uh, expositorily. We're doing that out of First Corinthians, and basically Pastor Roger is going verse by verse uh, step by step every week, but whenever there is a fifth month in when there is there, whenever there's a fifth week in the month, which usually occurs about two, eh, maybe four or five times a year, we do take the time uh, to take a break from our expository preaching and answer your questions that you have all submitted in a biblical form. We have a lot of good questions today, so if you are new here, that's why you see this format. Typically, if uh, you want to see a more traditional expository type preaching format, please come again next week, and we'll continue in 1 Corinthians, specifically on spiritual gifts. Um, and of course, you can always go on our website to look at previous sermons as well. We have a lot of great questions. Roger, you ready? Yeah, we, we really just do this because it gives me a chance a few times a year to actually sit down during the service. No, I'm just kidding. We, we do this because in expository preaching, because we could spend years uh, in one book of the Bible, uh, it's, it may not cover some of the questions that you may have, uh, and so we do this to kind of as a release valve for you to be able to ask anything that may be on your mind uh, or going, that you're going through in your life. Great. Number one, what are the core differences between evangelical Christianity and the Eastern Orthodox Church, in parentheses, besides the obvious comparisons to Catholicism and it's rituals, veneration of saints. Uh, it's a multi-part question. What do you think is the attraction for Christians who convert? Uh, for example, the Bible answer man, Mr. Hank Hanegraaff. And should we be concerned if a friend tells us that they are looking into orthodoxy? Well, let me begin by listing some of the uh, major differences that the Orthodox Church uh, would have uh, with us Protestants, specifically evangelical Protestants, evangelical Christians. Um, and they do, as the, question, uh, the person who asked this question mentions, they do overlap uh, to some degree with the Catholic Church, although there are some differences. Uh, the first is, is made mention in the question is that uh, Scripture and tradition, uh, or Scripture and the Church Fathers, you could say, of their per particular church are held at the same level. Now, there is one nuance that the Orthodox Church has that's different uh, than the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church would say that um, tradition and the Bible are held as the same authority or on the same level. Um, the Orthodox Church actually says the same thing, but they believe that the Bible is part of tradition. Um, Ultimately, how they view it is the same, that they are both in authority, but there is a, a slight nuance there. Um, a second thing is, like the Catholic Church, it is a very sacerdotal system. In other words, uh, it's very works-righteousness-based. There are uh, the sacraments that uh, need to be performed 
uh, in order to be saved. Uh, that's part of why they do infant baptism. Uh, and even with these sacraments, there is no need for faith on the part of the person partaking of the sacrament, and thus um, really you take away uh, the need for faith. And again, infant baptism would be one of those. Um, and this is very important because it's not just the tradition like we would say, like, oh, we just do this every Christmas. They believe that there is a part of salvation and sanctification in that. And so for a baby who cannot uh, even form the word Christ to be uh, saved through baptism, that's a big, uh, big, big problem. Um, unlike the Catholic Church, you understand that the Catholic Church officially did away by justification by faith alone at the Council of Trent. Um, the Orthodox Church does not have that. They don't have an official document where they say that it is not merely justification by faith alone. Uh, however, when you look at their sacerdotal system, it's clear that they believe that uh, and they teach that. Um, part of the Bible uh, for them includes the uh, Apocrypha, uh, so uh, books of the Bible that we uh, know are not, uh, should not be part of the canon. They are not inspired. Um, they would not use the Bible to correct tradition. That's a big one. So we would do that. We, we stand on the shoulders of the Reformers, uh, but we know that uh, even Luther and Calvin had some wrong views. And so we would look to the Bible and correct those views and say, no, this is right. This is the standard. The Orthodox Church would not do that. So even if a church father's writing uh, added to the Bible or even contradicted the Bible, they would not say, well, the Bible says this, and so the tradition is wrong because they are both um, or authoritative and held in equal weight. Uh, another issue as it pertains to the local church, so a local Orthodox church, is all authority ends up going up to the bishops that oversee the entire Orthodox Church. So it's similar to the Catholic system uh, with the bishops and the popes and, and cardinals and things like that. What that means, uh, as opposed to uh, what we do as evangelicals, each local church has its own authority. Now, even if we were part of a denomination, their authority uh, would still default to the local elder board of a local church in many ways. So uh, the Orthodox Church um, does not do that. And so even if uh, the priest or the father of that local church says something, they default to what the powers that be say that are, that are over everything. And this actually, um, in a moment I'll explain that, that's actually one of the draws of why evangelicals are, are changing into Protestantism. They have a different view of sanctification also. Obviously, it's, it's based on works, but they seem to imply that you can become uh, almost equal with God. Um, they, they, they call it being having union with God or sharing the divine nature, okay? And so uh, it's a very works-based system, and you kind of lift yourself up by the bootstraps, and you can achieve some sort of uh, almost deity like level. So those are some of the biggest issues, and so yes, there are enough issues that if you knew of someone who wanted to convert to uh, orthodoxy or an unbeliever, 
who wanted to become Orthodox, it, it would be a cause for concern uh, simply because their understanding, I mean, many things, but on the very fundamental level, their understanding of salvation and spiritual growth and how to honor God is just not biblical. And then for church fathers and tradition to be equal with Scripture is always dangerous because despite what they say, we know that all men are sinful. So what is the draw? Um, first, I do want to say if you look at the numbers, there are more people converting from Catholicism and ortho the Orthodox Church to evangelicalism. And so uh, just, you know, we have some big names like Hank Hanegraaff uh, and other big names in recent history that are converting um, to the Orthodox Church. And so sometimes we get scared and we feel like there must be, this must be happening in droves, but it's not um, simply because of what, what, we've, what I've explained already. But so saying that, there, every story is going to be different. Uh, my wife and I actually know a couple that converted to orthodoxy, and they just got burned by their church. Their church just went a little, um, a little silly in their doctrine, uh, too much on grace, and they just said, uh, we're done. And so uh, every, everyone's going to have a different, reasons, a different reason, but here are some of the big reasons. Uh, the first one, and it's believed this is why uh, Hannah Graf did it, is because uh, there is a depth of history in the Orthodox Church that the modern evangelical church does not have. And what I'm going to explain uh, does not uh, all necessarily apply to our local church, but to evangelicalism in general. Um, you ever go to Europe and you go and, and you visit a castle or something and you're like, you know, I just wanted to check this out, but now I need to go to the gift shop and buy the book and read the history of this. And you're amazed because especially in the U.S., we don't have castles. We don't have a long history like Europeans or Asians do. do. And so you're fascinated by the fact that nothing has changed for decades, if not centuries. That's one of the draws of the Orthodox Church. If you were to walk into an Orthodox Church today, it would look, except for how the parishioners are dressed, how the clergy, the you know, how it looks, it'd be the same as what it looked like a hundred years ago. And there's a draw there, and, and there's comfort for some people in seeing that things have not changed, whereas especially in the last 50 or so years, uh, evangelicalism and evangelical churches have changed a lot. There's a lot of movements, right? There, there's a lot of changes, right? Even maybe 15, 20 years ago, you would never walk into a church where they have a full band and lights and it sounds like a rock concert, and you definitely wouldn't walk into a church like that and anyone had stayed. So things are constantly changing. Uh, there's even um, movements, right? The missional church, the charismatic movement, the emergent church. And so that just lends to the evangelical church seems to be changing all the time, and people are drawn to something that has not uh, ever changed. Um, for them, uh, the Bible is black and white. And again, this is something that wouldn't uh, pertain to us as a church, uh, but a lot of evangelical churches are tending towards, well, what does this mean for you? Um, you have the seeker-sensitive movement, uh, and even some evangelicals are tired of that, and so they want something that has, again, hasn't changed 
for many, many years, and so there's a, there's a draw there. Um, Deep-rooted traditions, uh, historical continuity, uh, those types of things. Another reason is uh, I think a lot of times because of the seeker movement and, uh, you know, and, and I'm not saying this is necessarily ba bad, uh, but the concert-like worship, the coffee bars, the tune your radio to the station and stay in the parking lot, uh, tweets, we'll post your tweet on the screen as you're responding to the sermon, uh, things like that. Um, people are, are frustrated with that, and they want to go back to, to, to liturgy, to high church, the big ornate the chairs where the pastor sits up front, the, the, the clerics, the clergy walking down the aisle with incense, and the, the aisle is worn down because they've been doing that every Sunday for a hundred years. Um, they want that instead of, what's this church going to do? Do I grab a visitor bag? Do I grab a bulletin? Do I scan a code? Do I do this? Am I supposed to greet people? Do I wear shorts? Do I wear a suit? Do I, I mean, it's, they don't even know from church to church, and those different churches may have the same doctrine, but different philosophy of ministry. And uh, you, can, you can see, um, it seems ironic, but you, it's even fitting someone like Hake Hanegraaff, who has exposure to so many different people, answering questions about so many different movements, that ju they're just frustrated and they're tired and they say, this is, this is too much. God has never changed. Why is the church changing so much? And so uh, those are some of the big reasons that it is a draw and how that trumps um, their view of the authority of Scripture and justification by faith alone uh, is beyond me. Uh, but perhaps it's a wake-up call uh, to remind ourselves of how frustrated many evangelicals are with the trends of the church today. Great, thank you. Um, number two is a another multi-part question is, this may seem like a what-if slippery slope, but I think it's relevant in today's social climate. Is it biblical to divorce your partner if they change genders? They didn't cheat and may claim to still be a believer and want to restore the relationship with Christ, but what's done is done. Wouldn't this change the di dynamic of the relationship if they are now operating as the same gender as you? So, uh, speaking of changing trends, right? Uh, so, this is something that many theologians and pastors are trying to navigate. And to be honest with you, what I'm about to tell you, uh, some pastors and counselors would disagree with. And, and I'll be honest with you with the changing climate of, of our society, and um, I may very well circle back and change my view. But what I have to do, as we always do, is first go back to Scripture. So, Scripture, regardless of uh, sex change, regardless of uh, professed gender, gender dysphoria, whatever it may be, um, and I think you would agree with me that we would be very naive to think if it's going to end with this, with human genders, it's just going to get further and further, and so things will continue to change, um, but we still need to go back to Scripture. So divorce is allowed in Scripture for two primary purposes, right? Adultery, right? Jesus talks about that in Matthew 5. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians 7, as we saw recently in our study, if the spouse is an unbeliever, even if they profess to be a believer when you got married, if it turns out they are an unbeliever and they desert you, then there's nothing you, you can do about it. In both situations, again, regardless of what the situation is, 
in any divorce or pursuit of divorce, the Christian um, or the more mature one, if they both claim to be Christians, need to, needs to do everything in their power to make it work. Right? Adultery isn't, see, you blew it, bye, finally, I'm out. You try to forgive, you try to work it out, you try to move forward, you try to get over your disgust, um, you try to work your way back into being able to sleep in the same bed together, things like that. Um, and it's only if the adulterer uh, continues and refuses, then you, I mean, what can you do, right? So, uh, and this is with any Christian relationship, right? We strive to reconcile and as hard as it may be. So, um, those would be what I would default to, and so that would apply as well. What some other people are saying is they they kind of broaden uh, desertion uh, to include various types of, of abuse, which is a slippery slope, because t- today uh, in our hypersensitive society, just an argument is considered abuse, and so we want to be careful of that. Um, they, you could say that there 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 is cheating uh, because there is lying there. There is emotional abuse now because you're living. You as a man are now married to someone who claims to be a man. Uh, trying to look like a man, things like that. Uh, but I, I, I think the safest thing is the default description. Still, you try to work it out um, and try to uh, fix the marriage, try to uh, share the gospel with your spouse. Um, on a side note, uh, I want to remind you once again that we must be careful that what the norm is, and this pertains to another question I believe that comes later, what is the norm in society? We must be careful that we do not start believing that that is the norm in biology or in God's plan. And so we don't, in this question, don't assume that because someone has publicly changed their gender to male that they're actually a male. And I... I I don't know uh, what the intention was of this particular question, but uh, you can see how we can start doing that and say, well, now they're married to a man. No, they're not. No, they're not. Living as a man, spend a lot of money to be, you know, biologically change things so that they are more like a man, sure. But that woman's a woman. Um, And so that helps with us in our understanding of of biblical. And this this is hard. I'm not saying it's easy, um, but there are people right now in the country that you are praying for every night where there are Christians married to Muslims who are happy what's happening because now they can finally behead their wife for being a Christian. That's hard. And so uh, not to undermine how difficult it would be to marry someone who comes out as transgender or homosexual, but, you know, God is in control. When he, when he instituted marriage, he knew this would happen. He's not caught by surprise by what's happening in our society. And so, um, take, take comfort in that. Number three, how would you counsel a Christian brother whose adult son, uh, a prof- prof- professing believer whose interest in spiritual matters is winning, wants to marry a woman who is an unbeliever? 
If the son cannot be dissuaded, is it appropriate or too extreme for Christian family members and friends not to attend the wedding? On a personal note, is it your policy to refuse to officiate such a wedding? Another multi-part. Yeah, so I think it's very telling to say that the, the, the person who wants to marry the unbeliever, their faith is waning. And uh, I think that would be obvious uh, in, in the fact that they, they started a, a romantic relationship with an unbeliever as a press professing believer. And I think it's key to go back to what we saw, I think, just a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians, where you would, you would test them or have them test themselves on two parts. First, to see if they are truly a believer, okay? And uh, if they uh, find that they are a believer, then to look for fruit, look for spiritual growth, look for adherence to the Scriptures. And if they truly desire to do that, then the key passage to take them to, which I invite you to turn to now, is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, is really the key passage regarding um, marrying an unbeliever. And it's very clear, and uh, in fact, the terminology, as you will see, is pretty, uh, pretty shocking, I think, for someone who would be engaging in, in or pursuing a marriage like this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. There's the command. Very straightforward. But why? For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Let's continue. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And so, uh, right there, that's how I would, I would counsel them. I would share what marriage is uh, in God's eyes. And whether, th- you understand that what God sees and how God views things, it doesn't really matter if you agree with it or view them that way. It's what God sees and says. And so the two become one flesh. And so here that kind of, or it, it drastically adds to what we saw here. What does light have to do with darkness? It's, I mean, think about that in the physical world. How do you make light and dark one thing? You can't. They're opposites. From a spiritual level, what this person is doing is he is pursuing to become one with a corpse. Uh, Maybe that will help them to understand the seriousness of sin and total depravity to someone who is enslaved to their sin and you becoming one with them. Um, It's... It's not, it's not good uh, in any way, shape, or form. Should you attend, I would say let your conscience be your guide. I know things get a little trickier uh, with, um, with family members. Uh, as a non-family member, uh, I would not personally 
Uh, would I officiate a wedding like this? Absolutely not. Um, and speaking of conscience, you know, when we say let your conscience be your guide, it has to be an informed conscience, an informed conscience from Scripture, but even the reality of social traditions. A wedding is a celebration. That's why you're there. Uh, I mean, you may be there for free food or whatever, but the reason that there is a crowd, the reason that there are witnesses even required by the civil law is because there, it's a celebration. There's affirmation there of j not just the two people who could be nuts. We need witnesses to affirm this. You even need to, you have a witness sign the legal document here in the state of California. And so by attending, you are affirming sin. You are celebrating sin. And that's something we need to be very careful of. Um, Number four, should we call people their preferred pronouns? Uh, you may have seen the he, he him uh, identifications uh, or they. And then what if it violates your conscience to do so? So again, let, let your conscience be your guide. But again, you have to have an informed uh, conscience. And so when I say informed conscience, as believers, it has to be informed by Scripture. And of course, we know what Scripture says that regardless of what they want to be called, God has made them how He has made them. Uh, they can change it. I, you know, I don't... The reality is, and statistics show this, and they themselves are very uh, clear about this, the suicide rates among transgender people is extremely high. This denotes a problem. A problem, yes, theologically, but when I say that, I don't mean a problem as in Christians, we need to bash these people. We need to share the gospel with these people. We need to pray with these people. They are hurting. They're clearly confused. We need to have compassion on them. But we need to honor God and not capitulate to society. So, in terms of having an informed conscience, biblically, there are two sides to this. And I say this so your conscience will be informed and then you make the call. On the one side, as we've seen a few months ago in 1 Corinthians, we want to be all things to all people. Careful here. That does not mean sin. That does not mean go to the wedding we were just talking about. Um, but it means doing what you can do and still honor God and obey God for an avenue for the gospel. I know some of you don't like this, but I have used masks as an example. Why be the odd man out and start a fight? Just wear the mask and build relationships for the gospel. It's a small price to pay for the salvation of the lost. Okay? Um, and so that's something to keep in mind. That does not mean you have to use their pronoun, but it's something that should inform your decision. Uh, on the other side, what they are doing is a clear representation of sin. And so again, do you want to celebrate and encourage that sin? But back to the other side, they really have no other choice but to sin. They are enslaved to their sin. And so when an unbeliever uh, gets drunk on a habitual basis, 
uh, you don't confront them and says, God doesn't want you to be drunk with wine because they don't see that as an authority. They have chosen not to be bound by that. They are enslaved by their desire for self-indulgence. And so, obviously, there's practical things. You know, you don't want them to die or whatever, but there's, a, there's different ways to go about it. And the, really, the only spiritual way in a situation like that is to preach the gospel. I have no desire to make moral people out of unbelievers. That does no good because then I'm just a Pharisee factory. I want people to be saved. I can't do that, but I can share the gospel. And so anyways, I'm, I'm digressing as I do about 40 times every time we do a Q&A. Um, but keep those biblical principles in mind. If this were not a Q&A on a Sunday morning that I have foregone a, a, a sermon to do and you were just casually talking to me, I would have answered this question in one sentence and it would have been this. You can use their name instead of a pronoun. Now, I understand it's the same thing. Like that's a female name, but look. Then you don't find yourself in a tricky situation. You don't, you don't offend them. You don't violate your conscience. They want to be called this, call them. They're, your boss wants to be called Sir, Esquire, Boss, call them that. They want to be called by their first name, call them that. My dad, my, not my dad, my, my kids pretend to be puppy. They want me to call them doggy and pet them. I will pet them. I will go further. I will kneel down and scratch them behind the ears because, you know, and again, I don't want to belittle what these, you know, these individuals are going through. They're not playing make-believe like a child, but... Um, you know, there's, there's other ways around it. Thanks. That's a, that's a good one for today's um, different thought process. Um, and, and I would just say to even, if you're going to think about that and you choose not to call them by their preferred pronouns or, or actually call them by per, their preferred pronouns, which I encounter at work quite a bit, um, think about your response after you do that. Uh, don't just call them by their preferred pronouns and then eventually just leave it at that being I want to be gracious to them or think about your response when you don't call them by their preferred pronouns and have a response on why I'm not calling you that. Uh, just to think through it just because as Roger says, we're, you know, it, it makes no sense to stop an abortion if they don't know the gospel. Something to that effect. And, and it, it does. You really need to evaluate why it bothers you. Right? Are you making a point to seem righteous, to seem Republican, to pick a fight, or do you genuinely want to do it because, you know, you don't want to offend the Lord? And I think we really need to evaluate that and, and, and check ourselves these days with those things. Number five, is the son eternally submissive to the father or only here on earth? Um, eternally. And uh, there's several verses that we could point to. Uh, one that we'll unpack in a, in a little bit in our study is in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, if you want to turn there. And it's talking about end times and uh, the ushering into eternity. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says this, When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all, and this is for eternity. And, uh, and again, they are equal. Uh, this does not talk to any 
sort of lower status. It is uh, just their roles. And so, yes, we know from Scripture uh, that he is eternally submissive to the Father. Number six, are there any passages we should consider when seeking God's will when making an important decision, such as marriage, changing jobs, buying a house, moving, etc.? Are there any other practical things we should do besides praying, seeking wise counsel, fasting, waiting for a sign, etc.? Great question. Um, again, if this was just you walking out the back door after church and turn back and say, oh, real quick, is there any bill? I would just say, can you glorify God doing it? Are you going to sin doing it? Then make some decisions and enjoy it. Enjoy what God has given you. But in terms of principles, um, you know, whenever we make a decision, let's, uh, imagine you're saying, well, I've, I've decided to find a new job. There are some things you don't even think about. There are some givens that aren't even considerations. If people said, Why do, you know, what, what are you thinking? You wouldn't even bring these up because they're just foundational. For example, the reason you want to, the reason you're leaving your current job, uh, you are aware of what your field is, so you know, general, you know, I'm getting another job as an engineer or a teacher. Uh, you know how much money you need to survive. So those aren't really things you, th you think about. They're just assumed in the application process. And so what I want to give you now are some of the foundational things that should just be uh, natural to your thinking. And, he, and, and uh, the person who asked this uh, mentioned some of these. Um, pray. I do want to, actually, I want to go back and, and just be careful uh, about uh, looking for a sign. Signs can be interpreted however we want, and, and they, they need to be, you know, I like to use the word circumstances more than signs, and if you stick with us through 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, you understand why I prefer that. But, you know, God is sovereign over our circumstances, and, and so they must match with what I'm about to say as well biblically. You understand that fasting also, we need to be careful with that. I think people, people often confuse fasting as some sort of almost uh, if we fast uh, and suffer in some sort of way, then that uh, achieves an answer from God, it will get an answer from Him uh, more quickly. That's not what fasting is in Scripture. Fasting uh, is always accompanied with prayer, and the idea is uh, that you are so consumed with prayer that you're not hungry. So the other times that fasting you see in Scripture is when someone's grieving. You guys have been through this. You know, your, your, your kids, your spouse, your friend have to force you to eat. Like, you need to eat something. You haven't eaten in days, and you're just sad uh, for, you know, your, your father died or something like that. And so uh, fasting in terms of this context is always associated with prayer, that you're so consumed with prayer uh, that you have no desire to eat. It's not it's in some way twisting God's arm that he says, if you fast, I will give you a, an answer quicker. Um, in any case, you do want to pray. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 5 says, pray for wisdom. Um, you, you want to pray for, and that's what, great, right? We, we so often pray for the specifics, like, Lord, tell me what job to take. But, you know, pray for wisdom. 
pray for faith, uh, pray for guidance, things like that. Um, you want to seek God's glory. You want to have that foundational in everything that you do, but especially if you're making a big life decision, and so you've got to circle back and make sure that's a prior, priority in your life. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever then that you do, whether then if you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Um, you know, be holy for I am holy, Peter says, or quotes an Old Testament. And so, you know, we, we want to seek to glorify God. Um, Psalm 37, verses 5, 4 through 5, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. He knows what you, you desire. And of course, that's if your desires match with what is honoring to Him. Um, so part of glorifying God is seeking personal holiness. Um, there's many verses we can point to that you know, Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, we need to pursue holiness. Um, and then trust God's sovereignty. Trust His provision. Uh, know, know and believe, Romans 8.28, that He's working out His good, His definition of good, uh, in the lives of all of those who, are, who love Him and are, are called to His for His purposes. First um, Peter 5, 6 through 7, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Cast all your anxiety upon Him. Right? So if you're anxious about that, uh, circle back and make sure you're, you're focusing on Him. And then go back to what I said earlier. You're free to make decisions. It's okay. It's okay to change jobs. It's okay to change jobs because you want more money but just make sure it's not because of a love of money. Um, and so, you know, seeking God's glory means prioritizing what He prioritizes. So don't sacrifice your family. Uh, don't neglect your spouse. Uh, for, you know, if it means you have to be away from your family for months at a time, well, you know, you know your situation, but that, that's not looking good, right? Um, uh, so things like that. Um, church, if it's a move, if it's a school, uh, is there a solid church where you can attend, where you will continue attending? Be honest with yourself. If it's 30 miles away, you may think you'll attend, but you're not going to attend after a while. Um, so you know, think about that. I'm, I'm always surprised, and, and look, I get it, uh, but so many people are so thrilled when they move to this area and find our church. Like, oh, I, I really thought I would just have to compromise, uh, my, compromise what I believe or what's taught to me because from what I've heard about the Bay Area when I moved here and accepted this job, I just assumed I wouldn't find a solid church. And I'm like, well, praise God, glad you're here. Uh, but for you of you, those of you who are here, my question is, why didn't you look into that before you took this job? because that wasn't a priority. Uh, and so these are the types of things we really need to train ourselves to think through um, before we um, make big decisions. And, and honestly, little decisions too. Right, we, if it's eating and drinking, then all to the glory of God. What time are you going to go to bed? Uh, are we going to eat out? Should we take this vacation? those types of things. Everything needs to be seen through the filter of, of God's Word.
Yep, great reminder uh, and good practice. If you're not doing it, it's, um, it's good practice just to look to the Lord immediately. Um, oftentimes, these are caused by emotional or reactional type of events. And so I think it's good if we start practicing looking towards the Lord first, not going to Pastor Roger right away or going to, you know, a family member or, or a small group member. You want to go to the Lord first. That's a, uh, thanks, Chris. That's a good reminder. Emotional decisions are dangerous. Uh, number seven, uh, should Christians choose, I assume when they're alive, get cremated? Cremated while they're living? Yeah. No. I'm just, <laughs> exactly. Um, should we choose? Um, there, uh, <laughs> I guess being buried alive would just be even worse. I assume when they're um, dead. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't really matter. This, this could be a conscience, conscious conscience issue for some of you. Um, it was standard practice biblically in the Old Testament and New Testament to be buried. Um, cremation was not a thing, and this may just be a historical thing. Uh, but we do have cases in Scripture of those who were cremated. Uh, their were, bodies were burned after death. Saul and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 31, Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Um, if it's in regard to the, uh, the glorified body, your body, uh, maybe not your body, depending on when the, the Lord returns, but many bodies of Christians have already decayed, right? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And so it's, it's not, you know, if, in other words, if the thinking is I can't be cremated because God needs something to work with for the glorified body, well, for most Christians, when He returns, He's just working with dust and, uh, I guess, bones and really long fingernails, right? Isn't that the thing, the hair and fingernails keep growing after you die? After, no, am I just... I don't watch horror movies, so I know that's not what it's from. I think that's a scientific fact, and all the medical professionals look disgusted, so maybe I'm wrong there. So let's scratch that from the tape. Um, but th there is an argument... And this is the only argument I have heard, and it comes from John Piper, and it is that we were made in God's image. So we represent the glory of God, and so in that case, you don't want to cremate and destroy the body. Uh, but I, I, you know, he still does say, but this is just my view. Um, there's nothing in the Bible against cremation, he would say, so... Okay, number eight, we're going to get into some theology. Can you explain the doctrines of predestination and total depravity? Okay. Um, if the ushers could lock the doors, we're going to be here for a few hours. No. Uh, I will try to summarize these uh, as best as, can, as I can um, or give you the, 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 the basic understanding. Uh, the phrase uh, predestination... To get theological, and if you get confused a little bit here, it's okay. These are just theological terms. Uh, you understand that the word, these are, these are theological terms that man has created to help us understand biblical principles. So predestination is actually a, a doctrine uh, that is often, that term is used often, is often used interchangeably with a doctrine referred to as the decree of God. If you want to get specific in theology, predestination is actually a subset of the theology of the decree of God. 
And so the decree of God is simply uh, our understanding that God makes decisions that are eternal and uh, are independent. In other words, He doesn't need our advice. He is not swayed. Um, This goes hand in hand with our understanding of things like God's sovereignty, uh, God's will, okay? And so, um, that's when we talk about predestination, we often talk about that, His predestinating of all things, all things, even things that nobody witnesses, right? If If a tree falls in a forest and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? I don't know, but whatever happens, God planned it from eternity past, and nothing's going to change that, okay? Um, and if nobody hears it, it's because God had decreed that nobody would hear it, everything, from the heartbeat of an ant to the hairs of your head that have fallen since I've started, everything, okay? Predestination, generally, if you want to be theological and specific, it generally talks about God's choice of who will be saved, and so it has more to do with the doctrine that we also know of as election. So it's God's eternal choice of who will be saved. So understand that the Bible is clear that God chose you to be saved before you were created. From eternity past, He would choose who would be saved. Now, if you're already kind of confused, plug your ears for the next 10 seconds. If you're tracking, listen to this. The Bible is very clear on the doctrine of election that He chooses who will be saved. It is erroneous and heretical to say He chooses who will not be saved. Say, but logically, isn't that the same thing? Theologically, it is not. He chooses who will be saved, and we stop there because that's where the Scriptures end. Does that mean people can be saved that He hasn't chosen? No. Okay? Um, Ephesians 1.4, He chose us before the foundation of the world. So not just before uh, He created you, but before He created Adam and Eve, He chose who would be saved. Uh, Verse 5 of Ephesians 1 says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. And this not only speaks to predestination or election, but it also speaks to uh, the, f- the whole process of sanctification all the way to glorification. And so we understand from here, too, that if He has chosen someone from eternity past, they cannot and will not lose their salvation because once He has chosen them, He will start the process of He will save them, justify them, sanctify them, and then glorify them. Nothing can change that, okay? Romans 8, 29 and 30. For, th- for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. That's the point of salvation. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified, okay? Unbreakable chain. If you were chosen, it will happen, okay? So that's predestination. Uh, Total depravity 
is, the un, is connected to the doctrine of sin. We know that all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that this occurs at the moment of conception, right? Psalm 51. Uh, all people, save for Jesus Christ, are sinners, even before they have a will, okay? At the moment of conception, the biologically conception, not at the moment of birth, okay? At the moment that the sperm fertilizes the egg, you were a sinner. And, the, and that's what depravity is, sin. Total depravity means that every part of every individual is affected by sin. So it's not just your physical body, but your mind can make holy decisions. No, your mind is uh, affected by sin. Your heart is affected by sin. Uh, not your, phys your physical heart, yes, but when I say heart, you mean, you know, the will, the intellect, things like that. So when we say total, it means every part of your being. And as such, humans will tend towards sin. Unbelievers are enslaved to sin. They have no choice but to choose sin. That doesn't mean all the time that they're just constantly lying and murdering people. But the, the theme of their life, the, their character is sinful. Even as believers, right, we struggle with sin because we tend towards sin. If we do nothing, it's like someone on a canoe with, that's not paddling. They will just go the direction of the water. They will go the direction of their sin. They will go the direction of society. And that's why we strive, we pray, we fight. We, ex we, we seek to excel still more, okay? This also means that man cannot save himself. Nobody can save themselves because if they are totally depraved, if they are just enslaved to sin, there's no way that they can earn their salvation. There's none who seeks God. There's none who understands Right? And so there's not even a seeking of God because of total depravity. Because of total depravity, there is a broken relationship of all of created mankind with their Creator, which is why we need salvation, why we need Jesus Christ, because we have a not a strained relationship. As unbelievers, we had a broken relationship. Not just He has nothing to do with us anymore, but that we are now violently opposed to Him and he is violently, violently opposed to us. It's not just, well, done with him. It is, I'm not done with him because I'm going to just unleash my flood of wrath on him someday. That's why we need Jesus Christ. That's all com uh, connected to total depravity. Again, it's a result of the fall uh, in your specific life. Li uh, life, it is a result of the fact that you exist, okay? but connected to the fall um, from our forefather, Adam. Um, look at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Um, he starts chapter 3, Paul does, by talking about the Jews and the law, and then he goes into this great passage. Romans 3, starting in verse 9. And again, this is talking about the Jews and the law as a backdrop. He says, what then? Are we better than they, us Gentiles, us those who are saved in Christ? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And here it is, there is none who understands. Total depravity affects the mind. There is none who seeks for God. 
That is the heart. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. That is the will. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You say, well, I don't see, I don't see destruction. In fact, some of the most pagan people in our world build hospitals. Right? They build hospital, and, and, and what's on that hospital? Their name, Zuckerberg. Does that, that not just prove, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes? It's all about themselves. So this isn't saying that all believers are just going around shooting up the world, but we understand in, in God's standard they are murderers. They're filled with hate and anger all the time. Um, it just... And it's getting worse. The self-entitlement. I pulled over to let someone pass on, on a road. If you've been driven around the city, you know that's a necessity in some of these streets. If there's parked cars, and even my 10-year-old son recognized it. He goes, wow, he didn't even say thank you. Right? Didn't even wave. Right? I passed up a car, and my wife didn't see. Looked in my rearview mirror. Was gesturing with a certain finger for about 30 seconds. I mean, it's just, this is our world now path of destruction. It may not be physical destruction, but, but it's, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's social. Um, you can't tell me things are, are getting worse. No one would know what you meant if you asked half of these questions 10 years ago. Things are getting worse. There's nothing new under the sun, but society is getting more brash more optimistic in their sinfulness. Verse 19, Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay? Everything. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is desperately sick. Who can know it? That's total depravity. Okay? That's not, that's not someone who's just mourning. That's not someone who's drunk. That's just mankind, desperately sick, more deceitful than all else. Okay? So predestination, total depravity. Well, Pastor Roger, I felt like uh, only a few minutes passed. I wish we could do this for another couple of hours, but that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for taking the time to prepare those answers. Thank you, church, for submitting really good questions. We invite you to continue submitting really good, applicable, uh, both theological and practical questions. Let me close this in prayer. Father God, we give you thanks, Lord, for just the time today to ask questions, to wonder, and to know about your word and, to how, and how to apply it to our lives. We are just blown away, Lord, that uh, as your creation, you give us the ability to think, the ability to um, read your word, that you give us your answers, that you give us guidance from leadership, from the brothers that we stand on before us. Lord, we pray that we would be good stewards of that, that we would not, uh, in our own arrogance or our own pride, question uh, who you are, but instead question how we can better serve and understand you and be able to answer questions not only in our own minds, but even those of the, those who may ask in this world. I pray, Lord, that you would use this as an opportunity to spur us on to ask more questions 
to wonder and to be curious and to enjoy looking into your word and seeing where you provide those answers. We understand, Lord, that there is nothing new under the sun, and in that we take great joy and faithfulness that you are God who knows all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.